All right. It is uh, June 13, and we are in our part three of Daniel 11. Uh, we left off last week around verse 10. So um, we'll, uh, we'll pick up. If you remember, uh, Seleucus uh, III went to conquer Asia Minor. He was assassinated there by his own uh, people, by conspirators. And so then Antiochus III, the Great, headed toward Egypt, which had extended its borders north of Egypt uh, through Israel and into Syria. So by now, Egypt in the south had a new ruler. His name was Ptolemy IV Philopater. He reigned from 221 to 204 BC. So the surviving brother, Antiochus III, heads south towards Egypt, and he meets the opposition, Ptolemy IV from Egypt in Gaza. And so we pick up there with verse 11. And don't worry, we'll review some of this as, as we go along. Then in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. Verse 12, after the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies but his success will be short-lived. So who is this? Uh, again, the ruler here in, in the south is Ptolemy IV Philopater. Ptolemy IV Philopater. So he enjoys an initial victory. Um, Antiochus uh, III heads south, uh, engages Toma uh, Ptolemy IV's armies. And Ptolemy IV has quite an impressive army. Uh, according to one source, 73,000 men, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Not from Ringling Brothers, but these are, uh, these are beasts of burden that are used to war, 73 uh, elephants. Now, on the northern side, Antiochus uh, III, he suffers very heavy losses. Uh, he only has 10,000 infantry compared with 73,000 to Ptolemy. He has about 300 cavalry compared to 5,000 from Egypt. And he only has five ele elephants compared to the 73 elephants uh, that Egypt has. So basically, the northern king, the northern forces were outnumbered. Antiochus III, though, accepts defeat, but he was very patient, and he waited to launch a new attack upon the Egyptian forces about 14 years later. So he's willing to wait a while, gather his forces, but he doesn't forget. He has a long memory. He's going to come back and engage Egypt again, and we see that here in verse 13. A few years later, about 14 years, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. All right, now, who is he going to go up against now? Because Ptolemy IV, the southern king, has died. And who has taken over is his five-year-old son, Ptolemy V Epiphanes. Ptolemy V Epiphanes. You can see him there, uh, those of you who have your... Uh, 
uh, your charts in front of you. So he's five years old when he ascends the throne. So obviously he has advisors and such that are uh, working behind him, especially in terms of, of this uh, altercation that's going to happen with the King of the North. So uh, quite a few uh, allies Pastor uh, come Mike, up. Yes. A five-year-old might do a good job. <laughs> well, you may have a point there. <laughs> My, maybe a five-year-old might do better, huh? Good point. All right. So the uh, king from the north coming down, Antiochus, uh, Antiochus III, he gathers allies as he's coming down. And some of them are not so much that they're enthused about Antiochus the, the third, the great Antiochus the great, but they don't like Egypt. So it's a case of, uh, you know, choosing the lesser of the evils. So uh, a lot of the Jews from Israel, uh, the king of Macedonia, they sense that Egypt has some weaknesses now. They see the opportunity to get Egypt out of their hair, and they see Antiochus III from the North Kingdom as the way to do that. So they ally uh, and align with him. Verse 14, at that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the South. Violent men among your own people will join them in fulfillment of this vision but they will not succeed. Then the king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. So northern king Antiochus III is successful in beating back the Egyptian forces to the southern borders of Israel. And uh, although he now is in command. He rules Israel, apparently because of the fact that some allied with him, uh, he is not very harsh with them, even though that uh, they are now under his control. Uh, so perhaps borrowing from a page, although it was a very unsuccessful page in peacemaking history, and you'll remember this, Antiochus III tries another in-law plan. He tries to make peace with Egypt by offering his daughter to marry the young king Ptolemy V Epiphanes of Egypt. And who was Antiochus III's daughter? Her name was Cleopatra. But not the Cleopatra you're thinking of. Uh, this is Cleopatra the first. This would be two or three generations, uh, possibly before the famous Cleopatra, later uh, made famous by Sophia Loren and Elizabeth Taylor. So to give your daughter to marry the enemy as a way of appeasing them didn't work this time either. Here's what happens. Look at verse 16. The king of the north, Antiochus III, will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. 
He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. Now, he doesn't. And I think this is where uh, the fact that some of his allies came from Israel, that he doesn't lay siege to Israel itself. He will make plans to come with the I'm might of his entire so kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. All right, so Antiochus III, again, is, is, is thinking through this, and he's thinking, gee, I will give my daughter in marriage to this young king uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Egypt, and that will give me favor with them, and maybe because my daughter is now inside, maybe I can even overthrow Egypt in the process. Well, the plan doesn't work, and I'll explain why in a minute. So just to, to recap this portion, Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, had great plans to restore the empire of Alexander the Great, and uh, reconquer all of that territory, make it his own, put his name on it. And he, he was the greatest military victor of that time next to Alexander the Great. But we're about to see what happens to him, and things don't end as well for him uh, either. Before we go on uh, to verse uh, 18 and such, I, I want to do just a reminder because I had to I had to pull back for a moment and remind myself of this. We're looking at these events through a rearview mirror of actual history. What we're reading about has already taken place for the most part. But we have to remember that Daniel is looking at, at these events in the future. In fact, most of them are going to occur for 500 years in the future, way past Daniel's lifetime. And so we just have to remember, because I get caught up in the history. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I, yep, we can verify that. And I can lose the perspective that what if I'm Daniel? I'm looking at it in 2021 saying, yes, it's all historically correct. Daniel's sitting there with his eyes wide open, uh, probably shocked at what he's hearing from the messenger. And so we have to remember what the effect upon Daniel might have been as he's receiving all this news. We know it's now world history for him hasn't even happened yet. So anyway, it's something uh, that we need to, uh, to keep in mind. So Antiochus III returns to battle Egypt with ferocity, again, about 14 years after his defeat at the hands of Ptolemy IV Philopater. Of course, as we mentioned before, a new king now, he's five years old, his name is Ptolemy V Epiphanes. Now, obviously, the five-year-old, although, Anne, you may have a point, uh, the five-year-old doesn't go personally to battle the Egyptians. Uh, who he sends, or at least who his advisors sends, is a general named Scopus, S-C-O-P-U-S. So Scopus is sent to engage Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. 
But Antiochus comes at Scopus with this regenerated army. He knows because of 14 years ago when he got whacked, he knows what the Egyptian army is about. So this time he's not going to be, he's not going to spare any forces. He's not going to spare anything. He's going to make sure he's well fortified so that he can beat the Egyptians. And that's what he does. He forces them out of Syria. He forces them out of Judah, out of Israel, and he forces them out of the city of Jerusalem. So this long-term campaign retakes northern territory from Egypt, and that occurs approximately from about 202 to 195 BC. Now, a slightly humorous, I guess it's only humorous if you're the king of the north. Following, and this is uh, from a historical account, following his defeat at Peneus, Scopus, that's the e Egyptian general that was sent to take on Antiochus III, Following his defeat, Scopus fled to the fortified city, fortified city of Sidon. You remember that name, S-I-D-O-N. But after Antiochus the Surge besieged the city, Scopus surrendered in 199 BC in exchange for safe passage out of the city and back to Egypt. But he and his troops were only allowed to leave the city after they gave up their weapons and took off all their clothes. So this, this uh, entire Egyptian army that just got mercifully beat by the king of the north, the deal is if they want to live, they have to turn over all their weapons and they have to retreat naked. So that must have been, <laughs> that must have been a, a sight. Anyway, getting, getting back to the, the plan here. Uh, Antiochus III, again, wanted to use his daughter, Cleopatra I. You know, Pastor Mike, yes. you can't make up those kinds of things. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't make up those kind of, nobody would believe you. No. <laughs> but that, that's like, uh, if you remember, you know, from time to time when we've done our studies of... Um, um, okay, St. Patrick. It was a long yeah. night. I'm sorry. It, when we've done our studies of St. Patrick and, and his history and all of that, you remember how he came back to uh, Ireland after being uh, taken as a slave, kidnapped, kidnapped out of England, uh, taken as a slave in Ireland, and forced to uh, serve as a shepherd boy for the um, uh, for the pagan rulers there, the, the pagan warriors, the pagan generals. And one of the interesting historical facts about how these, my forefathers, sad to say, uh, <laughs> how they how they intimidated people before they took them on in battle was they took off all their clothes. <laughs> And and look like madmen rushing the enemy, and the and and the enemies were were so shocked by all of this that there was some shock and awe, mostly shock involved in, in, uh, in all that. All right, let's. Uh, I don't know why I went down that road at all, but here we go. All right, 
So Antiochus, Antiochus uh, plan, Antiochus the third, Antiochus the great, his daughter is, his idea is to give his daughter Cleopatra the first uh, over uh, to be married to the new young king, Ptolemy the fifth Epiphanes. And um, it backfires. It backfires. Antiochus the third thought, well, I'll have my daughter inside the palace there in Egypt, and I will be able to defeat them from the inside out. Well, as it turns out, Antiochus III must have uh, raised his daughter in a very conscientious way, because once she marries the Egyptian uh, young king, Ptolemy V Epiphanes, she becomes very devoted to him. She becomes very devoted to Egypt, and for all intents and purposes, she becomes Egypt's one of Egypt's greatest world allies. And so she fully supports her husband, the king of Egypt. She fully supports Egypt itself. And Antiochus III is left thinking, boy, that was a really bad mistake. In fact, she was such an ally that the people of Egypt actually adored her. And, uh, and, and came to, uh, she came to be very beloved by the Egyptian people because of her, uh, her alliance and her devotion uh, to Egypt. So Antiochus III thought he had a pretty cool idea there that had already been tried and failed before, and it failed again as, as far as he was concerned. Which brings us to Daniel 11.18. After this, he, and the he here is Antiochus III, the great from the north, will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge in his own fortresses, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. All right, let's buckle up for the backstory here. All right, here we go. Antiochus III yearns to recapture, as you may remember, the entire empire of Alexander the Great. So after he beats back the Egyptian forces occupying Israel, uh, Scopus, the general Scopus and such, Antiochus moves his forces into Asia Minor. Uh, most of Asia Minor, if we look at it today, would constitute uh, a lot of Turkey. So in 197, he moves his forces into Asia Minor or Turkey. And then uh, in about five years later, in 192, he moves into Greece. So Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, is now in Greece. And so he sends... Uh, ambassadors to Rome, and he asks them to ask Rome to be friends. Rome, however, is a little wary. They don't trust Antiochus, and the Roman Senate, the actual Roman Senate, sends word back to Antiochus that, yep, we'll look at a peace agreement, but only if you leave the Greeks in Asia alone and you stay out of Europe. 
Well, that didn't fit Antiochus' empire-building plan because Alexander the Great conquered a lot of that area that Rome was saying, we don't, we don't want you to touch. So Antiochus III says, eh, forget it, <laughs> and he launches an attack against Rome itself. And he takes some territory in Turkey, in Asia Minor, he takes it away from Rome. Well, the Roman army responds, and although they are outnumbered, Rome defeats Antiochus III in the Battle of Magnesia. Not the milk of Magnesia, but uh, the city of Magnesia in 190 BC. And uh, that was uh, led by the Roman general Publius Scipio, and Scipio is S-C-I-P-I-O. Uh, Publius Scipio. So Antiochus III is in trouble now. He takes some of Rome's territory in Turkey. Rome responds with uh, an army under Publius Scipio, and although the Roman army is outnumbered, they defeat Antiochus III. So two years after this defeat, remember things don't happen as fast as they happen in today's world, and there are not texts and emails and, and all of that. So it takes about two years to hammer out some type of treaty. And there's a peace treaty that's offered to Antiochus III by Rome. The terms are pretty tough, though. Here they are. Rome says, okay, we'll let you live and we'll let you go back home. But you have to give us 20 hostages and one of them has to be your son, Antiochus IV. So Antiochus III now is going to have to give his own son, Antiochus IV, up as a hostage to Rome to uh, complete this peace treaty. And you also have to pay a tribute to Rome over the next uh, 12 years to reimburse Rome for the costs of defeating you. <laughs> now, the, the uh, I was going to say the dollar amounts, it's the talent amounts. I, I've heard and I've read different versions of it. Uh, the highest I read was 15,000 talents have to be handed over um, over the next 12 years. So Antiochus III, he agrees to all of that, and he agrees to send his son, Antiochus IV, forth as a as a hostage so he returns home in 188 the same year that this peace treaty is hammered out and so when he returns home and now we're about a year later in 187 bc he's trying to figure out how am i going to pay off rome for all of its expenses that they incurred to defeat me how am I going to pay back that 15,000 talents or, or whatever the number was? So what he does is he goes to the temple of Belus in Elamais, and I'll tell you where that is in a couple of minutes. And he goes to the temple there and decides to raise funds by plundering the temple, taking all the valuables out of it and using that to help pay off uh, the Roman government. Now, 
Elamais, E-L-Y-M-A-I-S is how it's spelled, Elamais, is in the southern, southwestern part of Iran, probably near the old capital city of Susa or, or uh, Shushan, and probably about where Babylon was. So that's where he goes back to. Again, he raids the temple there. He's going to take uh, a lot of the valuables to help uh, pay off his debt to, to, the, to the Roman Empire. However, there's some folks near that temple that don't really take kindly to Antiochus III raiding their temple and taking all their stuff. So what happens is they kill him while he's raiding the temple. So he dies in the act of uh, raiding the temple. Now, this is very, uh, not amusing, it's just interesting to me. The year is 187 BC, right? <clears throat> like I just told you, 187 BC is when Antiochus III is killed. 187 is the California Penal Code section for murder or homicide. So for me, <clears throat> as an ex-cop, I've got a mnemonic there that I'll always remember the year that Antiochus III was killed, 187, because that's the penal code section for murder in California. Now, there's stuff you probably didn't even care to know, but it was 2.30 in the morning, and it was interesting to me at that time. Okay, so let's go back to verse 18 and review where we are. After this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities, Turkey. But the commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. That's Scipio. He will take refuge in his own fortresses, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. That's the nice way of saying he was killed while he was pillaging the temple. All right. So now... Now we're at verse 20. Here we go. This will usher in a new era, by the way, not a good one for the kingdom of the north. Verse 20. His, and that his there is Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. But after a very brief reign, he will die though not from anger or in battle. All right, so let's go behind the headlines again, find out what's happening in history as this drama unfolds here. So Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great is murdered. He's dead, killed trying to plunder the temple of Belus to repay Rome for the debt he owes them. Who takes over for Antiochus III? Well, Antiochus III, and if you have your chart there of the kings, you can look down in the lower right-hand corner. Antiochus III has two sons, Seleucus IV Philopater and Antiochus IV Epiphanes. All right, so we'll just say Seleucus, uh, Seleucus IV and Antioch Antiochus IV. Unfortunately... Antiochus IV Epiphanes, if you recall, is being held hostage in Rome, right? Remember that? 
and and so uh, he is not available to take the throne. That leaves Antiochus III's other son, Seleucus IV Philopater, to take over. All right. So the one son, Antiochus IV, is held hostage in Rome. The other son is free, Seleucus IV Philopater. And uh, so he takes over as king of the north. Unfortunately, he is stuck with having to pay that peace treaty fee to, to the Roman Empire. So, but in, instead of, Rome, uh, of uh, rummaging and pillaging temples like his dad did, he adopts a different tact that we are very familiar with here in California. He decides to raise money by higher taxes. Nothing new under the sun, huh? All right, here we go. So Seleucus IV Philopater so heavily taxes his people that another intrigue develops. He puts these very harsh taxes on the people of Israel, especially to the point that he decides to send his treasurer named Heliodorus to the temple of Jerusalem to personally extract taxes from the uh, people of Israel there. Again, this is the treasure, na treasurer named Heliodorus. So Heliodorus goes to Jerusalem, and he starts making sure that they squeeze as many taxes as possible out of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. As time goes by, now this Heliodorus becomes a very valuable guy because he's raining, uh, raising so much money in terms of taxes. And he really becomes, Heliodorus becomes the power behind the throne of, uh, of the uh, northern kingdom. So Seleucus IV Philopater has a brother, remember? Antiochus IV Epiphanes being held hostage in Rome. Rome, at that time, takes a look at all this and says, hmm, let's, let's, let's change the deal a little bit here and shake things up for these uh, kings of the north. So Rome decides to engineer an exchange. Seleucus IV has a son named Demetrius, who is now heir to the throne. Rome looks at that, and they apparently think, hmm, that Demetrius, let's take Demetrius out of the, out of the equation, and let's really uh, confuse the, the kings of the north. So they say, look, we'll, we'll give you back Seleucus IV will give your brother Antiochus IV back to you, but in exchange for your brother, we want your son Demetrius. Well, Antiochus says, or Seleucus rather, Seleucus IV says, okay, uh, I'll take my brother back. You can have my son. So he sends his son Demetrius, what a wonderful father, he sends his son Demetrius to Rome and allows his son to become a hostage in exchange for releasing his brother Antiochus IV Epiphanes. 
So Antiochus IV Epiphanes is now released, and he heads to Athens to live there. All right, so both of the, of the uh, sons of Antiochus III the Great are now in play. Seleucus IV is, uh, was on the throne. Uh, Antiochus IV is now released. Uh, Seleucus uh, the, the IV gives his son over to Rome in exchange for releasing his brother. All right. Uh, am I confusing you or are you following all along as best we can? I'm trying. All right. So Seleucus IV continues to reign for about 11 years, taxing people as much and as often and as vigorously as he can. So about a year after Demetrius his son was sent away to Rome in exchange for uncle Antiochus IV, treasure Heliodorus is up to no good. Nobody's watching this guy, and they should have been. The treasurer, Heliodorus, poisons the king, Seleucus IV Philopater, and the king dies. So the, tre <laughs> the treasurer, of all people, he goes and he poisons the king now the motive isn't clear we're not sure about that <clears throat> there's a possibility that heliodorus thought listen i'm the real power behind the throne here if i get rid of seleucus the fourth maybe i can take over and put myself in king as the king that is a possibility the other theory is that, remember Antiochus IV Philopater, who was the hostage held in Rome, he is now released now that uh, Demetrius is sent uh, in his place. And so there's some thought that maybe Antiochus IV got hold of and sent word to Heliodorus that... If you get rid of my brother, I will repay you with a lot of that money that you're collecting. <clears throat> we don't know, but it's a, it's a possibility. Regardless, Seleucus IV Philopater, the great king of taxation, is dead. And verse 20 comes to pass. He, or his, meaning Antiochus III, successor... Seleucus IV, will send out a tax collector, Heliodorus, to maintain the royal splendor. But after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger nor in battle. No, not exactly from anger nor in battle, but from assassination by poison. <laughs> that's, how, that's how he died. Okay, so now we have two heirs living to the throne. Seleucus IV had two sons, Demetrius. Yes. I just think it's interesting that um, they're in verse 20, the last sentence. They put it in there. I mean, though it wasn't from anger or battle, but they don't at all explain it. Why even put it there? Is it so that you'll dig it up and look at it somewhere? It's it just sort well, of weird. 
Yeah, here, here, and I, I thought about that at, at 2.30 in the morning, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, and here, here's my thought, Ann, about that. Why would they say that and not just say he was poisoned? Yeah. I think it's because it's a prophecy. And oh. that for some reason, the messenger doesn't feel that Daniel needs to know why, or that God was allowing Heliodorus to choose his own method. In other words, God was allowing uh, Heliodorus the free will to kill the king in a manner that oh. he decided. So uh, it, it's a kind of a, uh, what I want to say, not, not a euphemism, but it's, it, it, it's giving a, a broad latitude there. He's going to okay. die, but not from anger nor in battle. Okay. Uh, and and that's the that's the reason I, I think so. That's a really good question. I'm glad someone else thought of it. I thought it was just. <laughs> yeah, I think it's weird. <laughs> my brain was not functioning <laughs> properly. All right. So well, two... mine may not be functioning properly either. <laughs> well, no, it's it's it, it's a good question. It's a worthy question. All right. So there's two heirs on the throne still living. Demetrius, who's in Rome now as a hostage in exchange for uncle Antiochus. And there's also a younger son named Antiochus. All right. So Seleucus IV had two sons, Demetrius and another younger son named Antiochus. <laughs> what happens now? Well, let's see what happens. We're going to move to uh, verse... 21. The next came to power, or the next to come to power, will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. What happens next can be confusing. And I know we only have 10 minutes left. I'm going to attempt to unconfuse that as best I can uh, before we end. By the way, uh, Lee, are you still with us? No. Well, that's too bad because she asked a question that that uh, I could answer now. Anyway, okay, so what unfolds next can be a little confusing. <clears throat> as we'll see, the emergence of the released hostage Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, but it's not the Antichrist. <clears throat> and Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes is diabolical. He is uh, uh, very uh, swift. He's very <clears throat> he's very sharp. He can pull people in and flatter them and then stab them in the back. He's diabolical. And he's, that's very similar to the Antichrist. But he is not the Antichrist. There are many similarities, but he is not the Antichrist as we know from Revelation. John, and <clears throat> you may say, well, how do we know that? Well, two things. John reminded his Jewish brothers and sisters of this fact in 1 John 2.18. Dear children, the last hour is here. 
you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. So what we're learning from John here is that, yes, there have been many Antichrists, so to speak, but the Antichrist has yet to come. So we know from John that in Daniel 11, 21 here, this is not the Antichrist. It's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist in terms of Antiochus IV, but it is not the Antichrist. And then uh, the Apostle Paul addresses this issue as well, and I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but let me read it. It's important. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming, himself is, claiming that he himself is God. Then he says, don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. You can read that as the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived, and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. All right. So those are two passages that assure us that Antiochus IV is not the man of lawlessness talked about in Revelation, not the Antichrist talked about in Revelation, but he is a foreshadowing. He is very much like him. He's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. So let's take a look at verse 21 again, and then we're going to pull the curtain back. The next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in the line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. That despicable man is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who has just been released as a hostage uh, from Rome in exchange for Seleucus's, the third's son, Demetrius. And remember, Seleucus 
the third had two sons. One was uh, Demetrius and the other was Antiochus, also named Antiochus. Okay, so Seleucus the fourth dies after being poisoned by the treasurer, right? Demetrius, the eldest son, is next in line to take the throne, but he's in Rome being a hostage. Antiochus IV is released, but Antiochus IV is not next in line. It's his young nephew, Antiochus, that is in line for the throne. Now, at this same time, remember, Heliodorus, who poisoned Seleucus IV, is still in the background pulling a lot of strings. So while he might have had aspirations to take over as king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is going to thwart that plan. Antiochus IV, having been, re been released from Rome, goes to Athens, and he hears that his brother, Seleucus IV, has been assassinated. And he thinks, cool, here's a great opportunity. So Antiochus IV sets quickly off to Pergamum. Remember Pergamum? Pergamum. Uh, seven yeah, seven letters. Absolutely. And he makes a very powerful ally out of the king there named Eumenides II and his brother Attalus. And he does that by flattering them. This is a cool operator. Antiochus IV. So he flatters them and he gets them to be his allies. So with this powerful alliance now with the king and the brother of the king in Pergamum, Antiochus IV arrives in Seleucia, uh, the capital of the north. And he says uh, to everyone there, look, I just love my little nephew there, Antiochus, that's, uh, that's left. Um, I'm going to offer to guard him for you. I'll be his godfather. I'll be his protector. I'll make sure nothing happens to him. Well, one day in 170 BC, Antiochus IV just happens to wander away from the palace to take some time off. And when he comes back, surprise of surprises, that young nephew has been assassinated, the next in line to the throne. And I'm sure Antiochus IV was just shocked at this news, probably had no idea that this, this would ever happen. He's a murderous little guy. So and we'll probably call, uh, call this in a minute here. With Seleucus IV murdered, with his son Demetrius held hostage in Egypt, and with uh, Seleucus's other son Antiochus now assassinated, Uncle Antiochus IV is now the sole heir to the throne of the north, being that he is the brother of the former king. The king's sons are dead or being held hostage, and the former king has no more children. So that places uh, Uncle Antiochus IV on the throne of the north. So let's read verse 21 again, knowing what we know, and we'll end here. 
The next to come to power will be a despicable man, Antiochus IV, who is not in line for royal succession. No, he wasn't. He had to murder people to get there. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery. That's by getting that alliance with the king of Pergamum. And intrigue, meaning he's conveniently away when his nephew is assassinated. Okay, so we're going to stop there at verse 21. Uh, we're going to pick up with verse 22 because there's going to be more intrigue and, and the history gets even deeper and the story gets more exciting. And, uh, and, and we'll see what we do with that uh, next Sunday morning at 2.30 uh, when I'm finishing it up. All right. <laughs> it, that's a lot. I, I know I, I kind of like opened up a fire hydrant for you to drink from today. Any, uh, any questions, any thoughts, reactions before we conclude today? Well, I don't know how you retain all those names and dates and then spout them back out to us. <laughs> You are amazing. I don't know either. Uh, <laughs> God's grace. God's yeah. grace. He's definitely <laughs> gifted you with that. So what is Pergamum? What, what, is, what did you say about Pergamum? Uh, yeah. Antiochus IV, after being released as a hostage from Rome in exchange for his nephew Demetrius, Antiochus IV heads to Athens. And then when he hears that his brother has been assassinated, his mind starts working and he thinks, how can I take over as king? I know I'm not next in line, um, so I got to get rid of the two children there. So he thinks, you know, it would help me if I had some military backing, if I had some allies uh, to, uh, to be with me when I go back to... Uh, my homeland. So he stops in Pergamum and he makes an ally out of the king there. Now at that time, Pergamum is a major city. And that's, that's why one of the letters uh, was written oh. to the church in Pergamum because it's a major, uh, a major city. Uh, okay. And yeah. And, and so he develops this uh, relationship, this alliance with the king of Pergamum so that he can go back home, not on his own, but he has some heft behind him right now. He has uh, a king uh, supporting him and the king's armies and the king's money. And so he's, he's thinking, I, I don't want to return home just as an ex-hostage. Uh, that, that doesn't say much. But if I arrive home with a big king behind me, I'm, I'm going to have some status. So that's, that's the strategy behind that. Okay. Okay. All right. Any other questions? That, that was a lot. Well, you need, a you need it's what? It's a patent place. It, yes, it is a patent place. Of course, that <laughs> dates us. Most people, young folks now, wouldn't know what a patent place was. Is well, probably everybody on this program does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I, I would think so. Yes. Uh, I think we all do. All right. 
Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Lori, would you, uh, would you mind closing us out in prayer today? And we will be back next week uh, and we'll pick up again with verse 21 and uh, continue on for uh, another couple. Again, we got to get to verse 45. So we'll, we'll go as fast as we can without losing you in the process. All right, Lori. Apparently, Father, we just um, are amazed that uh, when you hear the expression about the same old, same old, how um, that is, is so evident and, and true um, uh, with this history that we are learning. And uh, we just thank you for the time that uh, Pastor Mike puts in um, to studying this and to being able to teach us. Mm. We just pray, Lord, that um, we would, um, again, um, just really uh, try to um, understand that, um, you know, history has been ugly um, throughout time. And, mm. uh, and we, uh, we certainly see it playing out in our country now. Uh, about real ugliness and evil. And, uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, put your hand of protection on us as we uh, slog through and times. Um, we just thank you for everybody um, at Serving Church. Um, we just pray blessings on us as, um, as we go about our, um, our week ahead and um, that uh, we are... Um, there to um, bless others and um, and to uh, love others as you would love them. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Amen. Thanks everybody Amen. for Pastor taking Mike. the journey. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Do you